0: This is the, I mean, this is the problem with political comms people is that they're, they're all cowards. Yeah. The institution, like they're, it is a professional calling to be a coward, yeah. right? If there's any risk in, a, in an interview. Don't do it. Yeah. Right. And I actually found myself giving my candidate advice like that. And I had to stop myself and say, no, do it. Like talk, just, just, Why not? just talk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You might say something dumb. You probably won't because you're smart. Yeah. So just have faith in have, yourself.
1: Exactly. This is Van My name is Moamir, and today on This Is Van Color, I'm joined by a freelance writer and the former editor of Alberta Oil Magazine and Vancouver Magazine. He's written for the Globe and Mail, The Walrus, The Tyee, and other publications, and he previously worked in Alberta's climate change office. He obtained his BA from the University of British Columbia and his MA from Carleton University, both in political science. He's returned home to Vancouver for a minute to talk to me on the podcast, and I couldn't be more excited. He is Max Fawcett. Max, how are you? I'm tired, but I'm happy to be here. (laughs) That was going to be my first question. How much of an election hangover do you have right now?
0: It is it is different than any other kind of hangover. It's kind of hard to if you haven't experienced it. It's hard to explain it in words, but it, it is like the combination of the flu and losing thirty points of IQ. Uh, <laughs> it's like being high and sick at the same time a little bit. Yeah, it's, really. It's it's something because you're, you know. I was working on a friend's campaign over the last little while, and mm-hmm. and you're you know, you're going 12, 14, 16 hours a day, you're not eating healthy, you're not going to the gym, Uh, and your body, I guess, kind of knows that it needs to keep going. So you don't really feel sick or, or tired. And then once it's over, it's like your body is cashing in all these debts that you've been running up, and and all of a sudden you need to sleep, you you get sick. Like it's just it, it's quite something.
1: Sure. What's the recovery time like post-election?
0: Physically, it's usually a th- couple three days. Okay. Emotionally, mentally, it you it's weeks. <laughs> Do you carry scars? Oh yeah. I mean. <laughs> Uh, I have an unfortunate habit of of working on losing campaigns, which uh, I'm starting to think might be something that I'm responsible for. But uh, it's it's not as much fun when you lose. Let's put it that way. Uh, sure. Because, you know, there's when you win, you have to go places. You know, you're going to Ottawa, you're going to Victoria, wherever. Mm-hmm. When you lose, you kind of all of a sudden have all this time on your hands and everyone – you know, you have to, to clean up the office and collect the signs, and then figure out what you want to do with uh, with yourself going forward. So sure, yeah, and and mix in the fact that I'm a few weeks away from my 40th birthday, and uh, it's a it's an interesting time right you now. You
1: cannot tell people that because you do not look like you're 40.
0: Yeah, this is only finally starting to pay off. Trust me, when <laughs> I was in my my 20s and even my 30s, it was it was not a great thing to look like you're 16. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it is starting to be a better thing. <laughs>
1: Before we add our two cents to all the analyses that are slicing and dicing the election right now, I want to get personal. Can we do that? Of course. You were shamed online, which is like a nightmare scenario for anyone. It sounds far worse than this election hangover that you're currently experiencing. A year and a half ago, you were grocery shopping. You fired off a tweet that would arguably change your life. What happened?
0: yeah so i I was not paying attention really and and tweeted something snarky and and you know not entirely appropriate at someone I thought was just a random republican uh, who was sort of uh, attacking uh one of the Parkland kids who, you know, they were at that school shooting and Mm -hmm. they had been speaking out publicly and and attracting a lot of attention from the right, uh, from people criticizing them. So I I thought I was sort of doing my, my duty as a progressive and, uh, and discovered to my horror uh, as my phone started to make noises and and vibrate in ways I've never seen it do before Mm -hmm. uh, that I had inadvertently sent that tweet to one of the Parkland kids, the sort of the token, not token, but the, the conservative uh, Parkland kid who was, was on Fox News. News and, and Breitbart and all these other places, arguing against gun control. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, not my favorite person in the world, but uh, you definitely don't send tweets to teenagers uh, who have been in school shootings. So I apologize for it. I, I took it down. I, you know, I was not trying to spin my way out of it. I was. I said stupid on my part. I apologize, but you know, the internet is not a place where they really want. Uh, an apology they no. don't they don't want forgiveness <laughs> uh, they don't want contrition they want to break you yeah and so the sort of the fever swamps of the alt-right set out to break me so they you know they they, they wrote news articles about, uh, you know, senior government official, which I definitely was not a senior government official, but, uh, you know, senior government official in Alberta criticizes school shooting survivor and, and sort of whipped up this, uh, this outrage on the internet. And eventually it, it ended up in my, my deputy minister's, uh, inbox, uh, with people calling and emailing him saying that he should fire me, Mm -hmm. uh, to his credit. Or at least from my perspective, to his credit, he didn't. Uh, but you know, he 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 gave me a, a stern talking to, and you know, I had to take a week's unpaid vacation, and and you know, sort of generally walk around with my tail between my legs for a long time. Um, and uh, you know, have, have had the opportunity to reflect on that. I, I wrote a piece about it for the Globe, but uh, it was, you know, I don't want to say it made me a better person, because that's that's. Not for me to say, um, but it definitely made me a different person. Sure. Um,
1: now, working in government, maybe not a high executive or administrator, but working in government, you were allowed to comment on politics publicly? Because I've heard that a lot of government employees are just not able to do that. I mean, I probably
0: wasn't allowed to, and I did it anyways. Sure. <laughs> um, I did not have aspirations of a long career in the public service. Okay. Um, I took that job because it was an opportunity to fight for good climate policies and, and, and carbon pricing and, and, and a government doing something about climate change. I I sort of knew that my personality and my, my, my aptitudes would not be a great fit in the public service. And I was 100% correct. Um, but yeah, I probably shouldn't have been tweeting and making political comments and, and, you know, so to some extent I, I got what was coming to me. (laughs) Uh, I, I, I just think that, that, what was, you know, what I got was disproportionate. And that is sort of how it is with these online shamings is, um, you know, you, 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 once you become a target, uh, it just is so easy for people to, you know, send you death threats, to say they hate you, to say you should be fake. There's no cost to them, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's the really dark part about social media is that we don't, you know, it's, it's called social media, but we don't interact with each other in a social way. Right, yeah. it is. It is anti-social media, um, and we say just the meanest things to each other um, on Facebook, on Twitter, wherever, uh, because there's no cost to the person saying it, really. Yeah. And in some, in in some, and I'm not a, a an evolutionary biologist or psychologist, but I do think there's something in our sort of reptile brains that we enjoy uh, ganging up on other people. There's something that that taps into in our like ape you know, primate DNA that, uh, you know, when one of the other primates is being, you know, attacked, we should join in.
1: Yeah, well, it's a mob mentality type thing. But then also, I think, having that avatar of technology, whether it's you sitting in your car, and it's road rage, or you sitting behind your computer, just having that disconnection between people through this technology, I think also brings out the worst in people, because for some reason, people just that there's no consequences or there's no one else on the other line actually receiving that yeah
0: yeah and, and we you know that the technology itself is is designed and mm-hmm. and constantly being tweaked in ways that sort of tap into the the, the reptile part of our brain right right yeah. like they, like they, they're very clearly you know in the notifications and the in the likes and all that stuff mm-hmm. trying to get us addicted yeah and they have I mean I you know I I look around when I'm walking, Downtown, and you know everyone has a phone to their face. I do it too. Like it, <laughs> it, it really is striking when you think of what sort of the street scene would have been like
1: 15 years ago. Yeah. people wouldn't have been walking around with phones in their faces. And that's the crazy part. It's it's only 15 years ago where yeah. it would have been a lot different.
0: Yeah, no. It, it it the the speed of technological change in our lives now is is I think so fast that we don't even notice it anymore.
1: How long did the death threats continue on for? Do you still get them? Do you still get this hate? Because I've I know some people. I shouldn't say I know them, but I know of people like Nora Loretto. Her public shaming will continue to be brought up online. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if she still gets death threats or, you know, that kind of nasty toxicity. Yeah. How long did that persist for you?
0: So it took about a week for the Facebook messages from people in Mississippi and Florida to to, to, to end, you know, I guess they got, they got bored. They moved on. They found someone else to, to vent and direct their hatred at. Yeah. Um, did you go dark as well? I did. I walk. I locked my accounts for a little while. I locked my Twitter account for basically until I left government. Wow. Uh, that was one of the conditions of not getting fired And (laughs) and fair enough. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 my Facebook account was back up fairly fairly quickly. And mm-hmm. people left me alone. I, I do think that there is a, you know, with with Nora and women on the internet, there, men have uh, a much easier time in these sorts of situations. I think the the degree of nastiness that is reserved for women on the internet is, mm-hmm. is of a different scale. Yeah, I would right? agree. So I, I got a taste of it and it was bad. I cannot imagine what it's like um, for... You know, and not even just women who have been who have done something bad, tweeted something wrong and been shamed. Just, you know, celebrities, public public figures, politicians, the the amount of bile that gets directed at them online is is uh, is depressing. Yeah.
1: You know, now you've you've talked about how this experience has changed you, hopefully made you a better person. How has it changed you? Has it affected your behavior online? your view of the world what what's the change here
0: so the change is is in I guess how I how, a lot of it is how I view myself so I you know I've, I've always been told that I'm a judgmental person uh, <laughs> and I would sort of you know I would reply that well that's not a bad thing right sure um, sometimes you need to make judgments and this I think has has forced me to be much more empathetic and uh, try to, and it's forced me to see the the best in other people because mm-hmm. I had an experience where other people saw the worst in me, yeah. and I wouldn't want to inflict that on anyone else. So, you know, when I when I'm online, I I'm pretty sure that I haven't called anyone a name. Uh, not uh, since Brett, I came,
1: not Brett Wilson. You i not gone
0: at him. No, like Brett, I will <laughs> I will pose questions and you know use emojis and you know you know I'm, I'm I don't. Support the way he talks about things and people online, and I think I think he could use some more empathy. Um, But no, I haven't called them names because, you know, a that's not productive. Mm -hmm. B it doesn't change anyone's mind, and C it reflects poorly on on you when you do it. So, you know, I think I've become more empathetic. I think I've become more patient. I've tried to uh, be a little less sort of angry. Uh, Tried to sort of, you know, in the Twenty-year-old version of me would would roll his eyes at this, but I, I try to, you know, have a more positive outlook on life. Sure, I um, love that. But it, but it's it's actually healthier. I feel better now. I feel, you know, as, as gross as some of the stuff on the internet is, and you know, reading about Trump and and Kenny and Ford and all you know all mm-hmm. these people that make me angry, I don't carry that anger around with me as much as I used to. Right. And I think part of it is because I've had to kind of reassess. You know, my relationship with that emotion,
1: yeah. Um, I think anger can can consume you, yeah, it absolutely can. And I think to your point, we all need a little more empathy on the internet. I would even argue we all need to decode the matrix a little bit and understand that there is this game of one-upmanship and gotchaism and outrage. and we're all playing the game. I mean, I do it all the time. and, it's, it's tough because when it's happening to someone who's not on your quote-unquote team, it's very hard to be empathetic sometimes. Oh, yeah. Because you feel like that public figure or that politician deserves it.
0: Yeah, it's 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 very tempting to pile on, mm-hmm. uh, especially when it's someone who has done bad things in the past or have has engaged in sort of bad faith arguments. So, you know, I think of people like, you know, Tucker Carlson or, or, sure, or Ingram yeah. or people like that where, yeah, if they if they suddenly were hoisted on their own petard, uh, it would be very tempting to take pleasure in that. Yeah.
1: Um, and scoring like a RT comment off someone where it goes viral. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you got a
0: rush. You do. And, it, and it's it speaks, I think, to the part of our brains that were raised a little bit on video games where, mm-hmm. you know, f- I, I definitely fall into the trap of looking at, my tweets and thinking of it as a score, mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, that was a, that was a good game. Hang yeah,
1: gamification that. of yeah. everything, right? Yeah,
0: uh, and that's super not healthy. That's not <laughs> what we should be using the internet for, right? We should be using the internet to meet new people, to reconnect with people we we've, we've lost touch with, and to find new things and new information. Yeah, not to dunk on people we don't like and settle partisan scores. Like that's that's not helpful. Yeah. Um, I actually just—I think I said "help," "helpful," and "healthful" in one word, but it isn't. It's neither of those things. So, I don't know how we fix that. You know, I'm—I'm I'm as guilty of of succumbing to those impulses as the next guy, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that my my little experience kind of was useful in teaching me that that you know there there is a dark side to this. Sure. Uh, and uh, you know, we we should try to be
1: be better people. Do you think? The blackface incident changed Trudeau because it was sort of his own shaming and he's already a public figure and he's always, you know, getting it online and from wherever else. But it was sort of the Internet story of this last election.
0: It definitely didn't help. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm someone who tends to want to vote liberal when I can um, and I I will confess that sometimes he hasn't made it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I think I think his strategy of inspiring and and really kind of raising the bar is is good, mm-hmm. but it also can really open you up to uh, a contrast when people discover that your actions have not lived up to those words and those expectations. Yeah. Um, you know I find it kind of incomprehensible how anyone could could. Put on blackface or brownface or any face of other than your own face, uh, and you not
1: know, know how many times you've ever done it.
0: At the, yeah, but and at, <laughs> and at the age of like in your late twenties. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that speaks to the fact that he, he is a bit sheltered. You know, he mm-hmm. he is the son of a prime minister. Maybe he doesn't have the same experiences that we all draw on to to say, well, that why would you do that? Yeah, right. Um, but you know, I I was you know helping a friend of mine run for office who. Who is a Muslim and, and you know obviously a lot of people asked him about this and he said you know look for me and generally for people uh, in my community we're not really that interested in what he did you know two decades ago we're interested in the policies that are on the table today and the things that he's done in the last four years and I think those things are and I apologize I'm getting partisan here but I think those things are more important um, but is is he permanently shamed as a result of this I, I think so I think anytime he speaks publicly about the importance of diversity or multiculturalism i'm willing to bet some conservative will will bring this up yeah right and hopefully you know he he can learn from his mistake the way i learned from mine mm-hmm. right uh you know I'm, I'm not suggesting that that he has anything to learn from me specifically but um <laughs> you know i think we can choose to look at failure and def- and embarrassment in one of two ways we can try to forget about it, we can get mad about it or we can okay, that's already two ways, three ways. But we, we we can we can try to sort of ignore it or we can learn from it. We can grow from it. Yeah. Right? And the growing from it is hard because it requires you to acknowledge that you did make a mistake and that you were uh, you know, a moron to some uh particular uh, extent, but that's the only that's the only way you grow is by failing and by mm-hmm. by confronting those failures. So maybe this makes him a more empathetic prime minister, maybe this makes him A little less reckless with with his fondness for costumes and and you know and what have you. I you know there is a there is a scenario where this this makes him a better person.
1: Yeah, I think online culture with regards to Canadian politics, this thing will not go away. Like you're going to see memes upon memes upon memes. I didn't like his initial apology the the night of, but I thought his apology and his addressing of it the next day, where he was talking about privilege, was on point. And when it came to this whole blackface thing, the only issue I had was the narrative being spun outside of it. Because the conservatives were pointing to this as, you know, this huge moral failure, which in a lot of ways it was, but I think we all have things in our past that we're not necessarily proud of. And as someone who you know, I'm a person of color, but I'm also very privileged. So there's probably a lot of times in my past where I did things where I had blinders on and didn't recognize what I was doing or what I was saying. I had an issue with the media narrative of calling it brown face. And I'm a brown person. I'm a person of color who's brown because there's no such thing as brown face. It's black face. And, you know, I understand why the liberals did it and why some media people did it. But Holding up a, a South Asian who's saying, "Oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal." I didn't like that narrative. We needed to hear more from Black voices. I think Desmond Cold was in, in the media quite a bit, and we needed those voices to explain to people why this was a big deal. Because no South Asian, unless they studied this, would have any historical context of why this was bad.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, I understand the strategy there, but you're right that it, it's a it's a bit like asking you know, somebody who's never uh, played baseball, what their feelings are about the World Series. Like, it's not going to be the most uh, credible and informed opinion. So absolutely, people uh, of color experience discrimination in a wide variety of forms. And Mm -hmm. that's important to talk about. But in this specific sort of, you know, this way, it's very specifically and almost unique to the black community. Absolutely. And so that's, those are the people we should be hearing from about, you know, what does this mean? Um, You know, is this how how consequential should this be i think the, the and it didn't happen in this election i'm not sure if it will in the next one at some point we are going to have a conversation nationally about you know what is the statute of limitations on past indiscretions right because we you know every election cycle we lose members of parliament who are uh, for lack of a better term old uh, and we gain ones who grew up with social media, mm-hmm. and
1: and our generation is sort of the guinea pigs of it. Yeah, like right. I, we were given it without any rules, so we're posting photos of us getting drunk on the weekend, and those are still probably circulating circulating the internet somewhere. Exactly. Like I, I am blessed in that I
0: Facebook came along right after I left university. Oof. So I, and and, <laughs> You're and lucky, no, and no one had smartphones then that could take good pictures. Right. So we kind of dodged a bullet, but. Absolutely, you know, people even five years younger than me—it's uh, a whole different story. And at some point, mm-hmm. we're going to have to be willing to let people move on from these things because yeah. if we don't, we're ne- we're basically going to have a, a political class that is filled with the most boring, mediocre, uninteresting people possible. Yeah. Because the whole point of being young—not the whole point, but one of the points—is you make mistakes. Yeah. Even dumb mistakes. That's that's the only, you know, as I'm saying, that's the only way you grow. You. Be preferable not to make the mistake at you know age thirty-seven, um, <laughs> but but we should let people if they have demonstrated that they understand why the why the mistake was a mistake and they've you know uh, made the appropriate modifications in their behavior, we should let them move past that. Yeah, uh, I was in, I was involved uh, in, in getting a candidate disqualified uh, in this election. Uh, so he was an NDP candidate running in Kamloops, uh, and we had disagreed in in the past on a mutual friend's Facebook page about we argue about pipelines. I was pro pipeline, mm-hmm. he was anti, and he got he got a little hot uh, and uh, threatened to break my jaw and. Uh, I, 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 just, wow. I laughed on the at, internet. Yes. Yes. On okay. Facebook, he posted yeah. like, I will, you know, I'll mark my words. I will break Max Fawcett's jaw one day, something like that. Yeah. And I thought, I thought like, ah, whatever. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about that, but I screen capped it. Cause that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then I, you know, found out that he was running in Kamloops. And so I tweeted, Hey, if anyone wants some good oppo, I might have it for you. Joking. Like I wasn't actually going to release it. Uh, and then the NDP panicked, asked him what it was. He told them and they booted him. Wow. And I actually... Said I think I, uh, I didn't talk to a reporter, but, uh, you know, I, I said on Facebook, like, I I accept his apology. Like, he shouldn't hmm. be disqualified. This happened four years ago. It was a disagreement. We both got, a, you know, get a little hot under the collar. He hotter than I. Yeah. Um, and he says he's learned from
1: it. So why, why are you disqualifying him? Yeah. Right? Uh, it just. It, and things have to be contextualized as well. And I think we really do have to put on our fair goggles, for lack of a better word, because. 12 years ago or whenever it was when Donald Trump said he'd like to grab someone by the P. Yeah. He was a grandfather. He was in his third marriage. He just got married. That's a different context than a 21 year old saying that to his friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not saying that either are acceptable, but the context of those two situations is very different. And I wish we had, a more critical eye and even with blackface i mean there's so many unanswered questions about it but i wish we we lived in a society where we could ask you know why were you doing blackface this much yeah. you know what was the con why like did you just like wearing face makeup was there other face makeup you know but we can't even have that conversation because of the fear of devolving into more shame and outrage and everything else that follows yeah, it, the internet seems
0: sort of uniquely gifted at annihilating uh, nuance and context, <laughs> yeah. right? It it just it goes to if your side did something and the other side did it, then it's okay or it's not okay. Like it's mm-hmm. it's sort of this weird uh, binary kind of tit for tat thing. When you're right, a grandfather using a you know sexist and inappropriate word is a lot different than a 19 year old who you know it, his you know brain is clouded with hormones and and he yeah. doesn't know better. And, you know, we we need to work as a society to help him know better. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- it's definitely a, of a different uh, caliber of offense than, you know, a famous celebrity in his 60s.
1: Yeah. Right? Talking to a stranger like that. Yeah. I mean, Billy Bush was a stranger to him, yeah. right? Yeah. In terms of internet culture, you know what I thought really jumped the shark for me during this campaign? What? Elizabeth May hitting the woe. did you see that i did not see that no thank mercifully i i missed out on that it was very bizarre so do you know what the woe is the it's like a meme that's going around tiktok it's a certain dance oh okay yeah yeah and the lyrics of that song are not appropriate at all yeah and she's doing the thing and and it was very cringy and very awkward and clearly they were trying to score some points off what Jagmeet Singh had been doing on TikTok. Yeah. And as soon as they started doing that, I was like, come on, like, get get a little more creative than
0: that. <laughs> See, this is, this is the, the, the moment that I have been fearing uh, ever since I uh, may have mocked one of my parents for not understanding a new technology is, mm-hmm. is that I would not understand a new technology. (laughs) And that TikTok for me, I, I just, it's, I don't get it. I, I understand what it is sort of conceptually, but, uh, and I suspect that might've been what happened to her where she had people on her campaign saying, Hey, the kids are doing this. You should do it. Yeah. And, you know, social media is extremely good at ferreting out people who are not authentic. Right? And that's what what Jugmeat was why it worked for him is because it was authentic. He's of that generation. That is the water he swims in. So of course he could do it. Whereas if, you know, Elizabeth May or or Jean Chrétien came out and did it, it would just look weird. Yeah. Right? Uh well
1: and I think that was it. So she hit the woe and then she high tend the young staffer or young person who was who's also hitting the woe. Yeah. And you don't really see that self congratulations in a TikTok once you do pull something off, right? So that was kind of weird. But then also, the lyric in the song for that particular meme was literally, bitch have no panties. So I thought that was a very Ooh. interesting move that they would, out of all the TikToks that are popular right now, for yeah. them to go with that one, I thought was a, a weird move.
0: I mean, I think the Green Party under Elizabeth May makes a lot of weird strategic choices. Sure. So, uh this this is sort of Uh, of a a piece uh, for them. But who knows? Maybe that was Warren Kinsella's advice, right? (laughs) Got to
1: use TikTok more. Do you think we're just cynical? Because I see if that was the thinking that, oh, all the kids are doing this, we need to do that too. There's a bit of cynicism because it's not speaking to a candidate's authentic personality, right? So it's this idea of, oh, let's just exploit these kids because they're all on TikTok And I've actually argued this on on Neil's podcast that I think political communications people are the most cynical. And when they message us in, I mean, this way is relatively harmless, but other ways I think are are more insidious. When they do that, that only engenders more cynicism.
0: Yeah, it's sort of, uh, it's like a prisoner's dilemma where you have all these political parties and political actors who are, you know, engaging in this sort of cynical approach to communications and Mm -hmm. and to reaching out to people. And there's clearly an opportunity for for one of them to not do this, uh, but if they if they are you know authentic and honest, they will probably get pilloried by the other parties and and will have to go back into the other way of doing things again, right? Like it's right. it's a risk. Yeah, um, and I I think it's a risk worth taking. Uh, I you know w- one of the enduring lessons in my you know brief forays into partisan politics over the last twenty years has been. People respond to authenticity, mm-hmm. uh, and they can smell BS a mile away. They they may not be able to explain why it's BS. They may not be able to articulate, you know, the the truth of the issue. But they know when they're being lied to, and they know when they're not being told the whole truth. Mm-hmm. And politicians keep doing that to them. Yeah. And and so you know, I I don't blame people for being cynical. Um, you know, I think there are moments of. Uh, uh, you know, of non-cynicism. You look at you know, Obama in two thousand eight. I think there was a sort of collective moment where everyone decided that they would not be cynical. Sure. Um, and
1: <laughs> that didn't last for. I long didn't. Ago. Well,
0: it didn't last exactly. Um, but I remember the moment. I remember that feeling. It, yeah. was, it was a good feeling. I, I, there's a part of me. I mean, I think that 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 was what uh, motivated Bernie Sanders. Is people genuinely dropped their guards and got excited about him yeah um, and i think he still has that he does i think elizabeth warren has it uh it is conspicuously absent i would say in canada i mean i do think mm-hmm. that there was a bit of that in trudeau in 2015 where people yeah. after 10 years of stephen harper said oh we can feel good about politics let's <laughs> yeah. let's do that sure um but you're right like with you know the the demise of of you know the mainstream media and, and people sort of drawing their information from. Ever more esoteric sources. Mm-hmm. The the old way of communicating is not going to work. Yeah. Um, and I think you know you you do see politicians like Jugmeet Singh sort of t- doing these little tests of of new ways to to communicate mm-hmm. and to reach people. But you know at the end of the day, I think the only thing that will get rid of cynicism in voters is an end to the cynicism in in the politicians that want to represent them. Yeah. Um, and you know, I don't see that right now in a lot of the the leaders in this country. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, I see I see leaders who want to you know whip up you know Western separation, even though they know it's it's literally the dumbest idea in human history. Um, <laughs> you know, you see leaders in Quebec who are willing to tolerate and and profit from this sort of weird, uh, unique Quebec version of racism, where yeah. you know, they are they are clearly bigoted against people who have dark skin mm-hmm. but are also like feminists and don't like pipelines like it's just it's a very weird political hybrid. Yeah. And and everyone tiptoed around that one, right? Because, yeah, no one took a stand. Because it was too dangerous. It was too mm-hmm. risky and and you know, it, it, and I it, wish
1: Jagmeet had. I mean, I think they said around 4 out of 10 Quebecers don't like Bill 21. Yeah. And he knew that he was going to eat it in Quebec anyway. So why not just swing for the fences, man?
0: I agree. Uh it was a weird Decision on their part. I think maybe he felt like he owed his Quebec MPs uh, a chance, yeah. and and thought that if he said that, it would just completely destroy their 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 hopes. But I think it's pretty clear their hopes were uh, not realistic, anyways. Yeah. And you're right. Maybe that would have put a little more wind in his sails in the rest of the country. Hmm. Um, I mean, my, my political idol, the person that got me interested in politics was Pierre Trudeau. Really? Uh, um, yeah. Wow. And I mean, obviously, I wasn't, I wasn't alive when he was uh, in office mm-hmm. or I was, I was a baby. But I think what people connected to with him was that he wasn't cynical. Yeah. Right. He was. He was fundamentally authentic. You know, right down to wearing ridiculous capes to CFL games and and, you know, it just like he he did he gave no you know what's about what other you can people swear f- here if you want he gave no fucks, <laughs> um, and I think people connected to that and I think in a weird way and 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 I'm not trying to draw the comparison but there is something of that in Trump. Um, I was
1: just gonna say because. Even though he's a jerk, he owns that. And I think, w- speaking to the idea of authenticity, do I think Trump is an authentic person? Not really, but I think he's a jerk in real life and he plays up that heel role yeah. very well. And people, regardless, are drawn to that. People kind of like the jerk sometimes.
0: Oh, yeah. And I think he's, I mean, he's obviously, you know, full of full of crap when he says that he wants to help working people. And, sure. And, you know, his policy positions are whatever, you know, whatever... He gets told will most likely get him reelected. He, you know, and help rich people. Mm-hmm. Those are really his his sort of uh, his markers in that sense. But yeah. in terms of his personal charisma, his personal approach, he is authentic. Yeah, he is authentically terrible. Yeah. but he is authentic, and I think a lot of people respond to that. Yeah, uh, especially when he was put up against like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. and yeah. these just like quintessentially inauthentic politicians. Yeah, so you know, for the left
1: and for, you know. And he's funny. Like, again, I'm not condoning what he's saying. Yep. But he is genuinely an entertainer. Yes. And if you're on his side and he's ripping on someone, it's kind of funny. Yep. Like when Kristen Gillibrand dropped out of the race and then, you know, Trump tweets out, oh, if only the Democrats knew she was the one that I feared. Like, that's pretty funny.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he is he is a troll. Yeah. And and maybe we deserve a, a troll president uh, in the age of, of you know, Twitter trolls. I don't know. I think that's well in
1: the age of, you know, videos that go viral, which are like Ben Shapiro pones leftist SJW or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's kind of the culture that he's reflecting in a lot of ways, even though due to his age, he's so far removed from that.
0: I think I think he is uh, emotionally and intellectually about fourteen years old, yeah. and he has always been fourteen years old. Yeah. And so this this m- cultural moment maybe was perfect for him. Mm-hmm. You know, where we we are in a sort of uh, culture where th- the attitudes and, and inclinations of fourteen-year-old boys are suddenly ascendant. Yeah. And you know, it 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 it, it, it was a weird moment, uh, and he kind of fit into it perfectly. I don't, you know, I don't think he will. Pray that he will not get reelected, but uh, who knows what the next cultural moment will be?
1: How much of our election was about cynicism? Do you think?
0: I I I think our election was it, people were presented with a buffet of unattractive options, and they you they, worked on
1: a campaign. <laughs> oh, I,
0: I thought what we were offering, you know, on the on the local level was was very delicious. Sure. But, um, you know, I think the, the the shine had worn off on Trudeau, uh, you know, that there's the blackface, brownface stuff. There's the, the trip to India. There's the Aga. There's just a bunch of things that really kind of made people kind of take a second look at him. And, and I you know, I was on a lot of doors where people said, I can't vote for Trudeau again. Mm-hmm. I did last time. You know, the electoral reform one, that was a, that was a big one uh, mm-hmm. because I think he lost a lot of votes of people, let's call it under 40, who they trusted him with their vote because of that promise. Right. Uh, and it's still... It you know I understand why you know technically uh, and and sort of from the inner workings of of government why they didn't move forward with it but it was a bad look yeah. uh, but then you have Andrew Shear who uh, you know is basically just a cynical marshmallow of a person <laughs> um, and and Jugmate who I think disappointed a lot of people. Um, and then Elizabeth May who's Elizabeth May. So, you know, I I think people just wanted to send a message to Ottawa that like we're not thrilled with our choices, so we're going to we're going to send back, you know, uh a constrained government, please do better next time. Yeah. Uh and time will tell whether any of the parties can do better. Yeah.
1: I think with Jagmeet he really seemed to come out late in the gate. You know what I mean? Like where was this guy in the summer? Right. Where was this guy in the by-election in February. Yeah. Right? He just was not out there. He was not that charismatic person that suddenly emerged a couple weeks before ballots are being counted. Yeah. But to your point, I th- I think there was a lot of cynicism, especially from the conservatives. When you're watching that debate, and I was overseas and you know I missed like 2 weeks of the campaign because I was on vacation, which was great, but yeah. I did catch the English debate. And when you have Andrew Shear up there, criticizing Trudeau on indigenous policies because he fired the first indigenous attorney general, that's cynicism to me. Because you're not talking about indigenous issues, right? And even when it comes to SNC-Lavalin, another problem I have with, and I'm using this like homogenous term, the media, but there's different media narratives. And I think the dominant media narrative around SNC-Lavalin was about he said, she said, between Jody Wilson-Raybould and Gerald Butts and Justin Trudeau, whereas we're not talking about, you know, the merits of a DPA option. We're not talking about how this legislation was brought at the behest of SNC-Lavalin. Those were more important conversations, but they were completely absent because more people were talking about, you know, the drama and she recorded the conversation and Gerald Butts lied and Trudeau lied or, you know, whatever it was. and. That I think was so symbolic of the cynicism. We weren't talking about real issues in a lot of ways, even blackface. I mean, we're not talking about criminal justice reform, which affects people of color. We're not talking about indigenous issues. We're not talking about Bill 21 in a substantive way, but we're talking about blackface and calling that a conversation about race. You know what I mean? Yeah,
0: no, it, it, it's it's a good observation. I mean, I, 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 as a former member of the media and, and someone maybe still a member of the media, I am sympathetic to my brothers and sisters uh, for the way they covered SNC. Uh, sure. The the I wrote a piece for the Walrus about the merits of a DPA uh, and the whole sort of that 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 part of it, mm-hmm. and it was hard to wrap my head around that. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, most journalists are not lawyers. Uh, it's and also not
1: a sexy piece to the public. I it's understand
0: not, that. No, right? no, it's not. And and. And on the other hand, you have this like highly riveting sort of uh, political car crash sure. unfolding in front of you, and you have people involved in the car crash who are willing to, you know, talk to you. Yeah, that's that's where you're going to go as a journalist. It's it's the the low hanging fruit versus the fruit that's way up the tree and might may not even be fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be a you know a pine cone or something. So I get that part of it. You're but you're right. And I think maybe the reason why the conservative attacks on Trudeau didn't work is because people liberals who might conceivably in a previous generation have gone to the PCs, I think they understood that those were bad faith arguments, mm-hmm. right? That when conservatives talk about uh, how terrible it was that Trudeau fired uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and that makes him not a feminist or it makes him not care about indigenous issues.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think they know that the people leveling that criticism care even less yeah. uh, and have proven that at every available opportunity when they mm-hmm. get to government. I mean, I think, you know, Sheer has, I believe, six possibly more indigenous communities in his riding, And I don't believe he's met with them recently. Like, wow, th- th- just little things like that. Wow. So, you know, I think in a different election Let's say Ronna Ambrose is the leader of the conservatives, and she is leveling those accusations. Maybe they do more damage yeah. because because she has credibility on both of those files um, that Andrew Shear just doesn't. Um, and so, you know, as the conservatives move forward, I think they kind of have to, uh, and whether they will is a whole other issue. But they have to think about you know, how they're positioning themselves such that they can they can land blows on on Trudeau in these issues. Mm-hmm. Because if they're, you know, running candidates who are, you know, opposed to, to women's right to choose, and they run candidates who, you know, don't think indigenous rights should be upheld and whatever else, they don't really get to fire any shots on those issues. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the NDP does, but by the same token... Because of our electoral system, you know, it's hard to take them credibly as a, as a threat to form government. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we end up in this, these, these, and I feel for my, my NDP friends who, you know, have to vote liberal over and over again in a lot of ridings because they don't want to have a conservative uh, win there or a conservative government. Um, you know, I think if you wanted to get rid of cynicism in our politics, one way to do it would be to bring in a ranked ballot. Yeah, um, absolutely. I bec- think that's a great system. Because, you know, it's not what, it's not what, electoral reform advocates want because it's not you know proportional representation but mm-hmm. what it does is it it stops forcing people to make a choice they don't want to make mm-hmm. and oftentimes and I've talked to friends of mine who are not particularly political they just opt out mm-hmm. because if they keep getting forced to make a choice they don't want to make they will stop making the choice yeah right whereas if you had a ranked ballot they could go oh great NDP 1 Liberals 2 Conservatives, three, whatever. Yeah, um, and it would also force all of the parties to to be a little more consensus oriented.
1: Absolutely, you they know, have to speak to everyone, right? Not just their base or what they think their base is.
0: Yeah, like right now, there's no penalty. For a conservative in completely alienating new Democrats, right yeah. they don't care, yeah um, but if you had a ranked ballot, suddenly they'd have to care, yeah, they would have to think about how does this play with with NDP voters, how does this play with sort of you know left wing liberal voters yeah um, and maybe that would bring them into the center a little more, likewise, maybe it would bring the liberals closer to the conservative position on some issues so mm-hmm. You know, I will, I will keep talking about the merits of a ranked ballot until I'm blue in the face. Um, <laughs>
1: no, I mean, you're speaking to the converted. I think that's a great idea. And a lot of leadership races within parties are on ranked ballots as well. Yeah. So it makes sense. I, yeah. I've I mean, done it. I've been a part of it. I mean,
0: th- there are those who would say, uh, you know, a ranked ballot produced Andrew Scheer. So maybe conservatives are not going to be too enthusiastic about that particular form. But- uh, you know, it, it saved they them. They didn't have it, a ton of choices, It saved though. them from Maxime Bernier. Yeah. Right? Who, if they had done it in a sort of old-fashioned delegated convention, he absolutely would have won. Yeah. So, you know, they can thank their lucky stars for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I I want to be clear... It was not my intention to slam the media in general, quote unquote. There were just some narratives that I had issues with. But it is fully my intention to slam political communications people who I think drop the ball across parties. I don't think they did a great job. I think they feed into cynicism. I think they're one of the problems with political culture. So I'm going to ask you a cynical question. Okay. How much of political discourse as spoken through political parties and their platforms. How much of it is just nerdy battle rap? Nerdy battle rap. I like that. (laughs) Um, You're just trying to get up one on each each other and you're trying to get the crowd to go, Whoa. Oh yeah. It's a good, I
0: mean, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, There are definitely nerd battle rappers uh, in all, in all the parties who want to do that. (laughs) Um, I think, I think policy has become very transactional. Mm -hmm. Uh, of late and that worries me um and i think that is cynical i think you know the 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 rise of big data has definitely not corrupted politics but it has started to color politics Hmm. and what you have is you have you have data susan delacorte wrote a really good book about this i think it was called shopping for democracy or, or something like that where it's about sort of how democracy and how political parties have become very almost uh almost like you know consumer uh companies that sell, like Procter & Gamble. Sure, yeah. Um, and they they identify a small slice of the market that has a particular need and try to fill it rather than speaking to the whole country mm-hmm. and having sort of national policy with national scope. And that's how you get these boutique tax credits. That's how you get these, uh, you know, sort of boutique policy offerings. Right. And I th- I don't think that inspires people. I don't think that broad- that heightens the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right that this is being driven by the, the political comms people who are saying, no, 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 you don't, it's too risky to articulate a national vision. It's too it's too <laughs> right. dangerous. It's much better to target, you know, women between 36 and 49 who have two children and live in Ontario, right? right. And, and we'll micro target them. Um, NASCAR dads. Yeah, and maybe that, maybe that, I mean, that's certainly the the Hamish Marshall playbook who, you know, he was mm-hmm. Andrew Shear's campaign manager. I guess that they wouldn't be doing if it didn't work I think there are some unintended consequences that they're not appreciating. They, mm-hmm. You know, in a longer view of of our political discourse, they are damaging uh, what is community property, yeah. which is our trust in democracy, yeah, um, and how that
1: changes our consciousness about politics and about politicians.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, they're they're fouling their own nest because yeah. the less people engage with politics, trust politicians, and and believe that positive change can be delivered by by elected officials. The less credibility and authority they have with public, mm-hmm. um, but that's you know like all um, uh, sort of uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for here? But these you know like the tragedy of the commons, sure. like all tragedies of the commons, the individual level they don't care. Yeah, they know that they're they're overfishing their particular uh, you know uh, fishery, but. They have to do it because yeah. they want to win. Um, I'm really mixing my metaphors here. but Burrus, um, so, yeah, It's a short
1: sightedness because they're thinking about tomorrow and they're thinking about terms in very short time segments. Trevor yeah. No,
0: I mean, I, th- you know, I think back to Trudeau and, and Trudeau I and, and his you know, articulation of a just society. Mm-hmm. That, that concept animated like 15 years and almost 16 years in government. Yeah. It, everything he did, every policy he brought forward, every law he changed was about making Canada a more just society. Mm-hmm. And that still continues to resonate with people, mm-hmm. right? You talk you talk to immigrants, you talk to people who came to Canada because of Trudeau, and it's that that sense that still drives them. And I don't see that with any of the political leaders these days. It's how can I put more money in your pocket, Yeah. right? How can I make your life marginally better than it is already? Yeah. And I understand why... That makes people cynical. Yeah. Because where's the where's the joy in that? Yeah. You know where's the where's the the belief that we can achieve great things
1: together? Sure. On the topic of trying to find joy in something, I want to shift gears a little bit. I've read what you've uh, wrote and said about Vancouver, and it feels like the city has broken your heart in a lot of ways. And you've singled out the city's complacency, as thinking of itself as the best place on earth. Do you feel that Vancouver? and Vancouverites are complacent because I feel like post-Olympics, we've actually become quite angsty. So I,
0: so, you know, I, when I was the briefly, the editor of Vancouver magazine, this was sort of the thing that, that went through my head every day was, Mm -hmm. was, you know, what, what is Vancouver? What can it become? And what did it used to be? Yeah. And, and are my biases in any of that kind of coloring, uh, how I see things? I, I love Vancouver for its beauty. I love Vancouver for the people who live here. Um, I think it's a, it's an amazing place to live. I think that it reads way too much of its own advertising copy sure. um, and enjoys the smell of its farts a little too much. Um, and, and I think that is getting in the way of actually building a world-class city. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Vancouver is is dangerously close to becoming a... A resort for people with money from other parts of the world. Yeah, as opposed to a Some place, would argue that it is. Yeah, as opposed to a place where people can create meaning, uh, build a life, improve their circumstances, um, and I think that is what a great city is. It's a place that is, people are attracted to because they think they can make themselves better than they are. You know, whether it's their career, uh, well, it's almost always their career. But um, being exposed to more people, being exposed to new ideas, having access to infrastructure transit Mm -hmm. what have you cities that succeed in our world class are magnets because people think that they can uh you know go to them and leave with a better hand i don't think that's true in vancouver anymore Mm. i think people come here to spend money i think people come here to celebrate their success but if you're a young person in the valley or in alberta or in northern ontario are you really going to move to vancouver to start a business are you really going to move to Vancouver to, to make something of yourself? Yeah. I I don't see it. Uh, and I the thing that worried me when I was at Van Mag and that still worries me today is that, you know, sort of you hinted at it. I think it might be too late. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, the time to, to arrest this was probably, you know, early 2000s thereabouts. And I think it was just too easy to keep doing things the way they had been done. Keep, you know, keep taking... The, you know the money that was going into real estate keep not asking questions about where it was from sure yeah. Um, because people were getting rich yeah um, but in the process I think they may have broken the city now it doesn't look broken to people outside mm-hmm. um, you know it looks wonderful and prosperous and, and beautiful and it is but to me and this is this is my bias you know I grew up in Falls Creek which is a pretty middle class you know uh, work your way up from the bottom type of place. You know, a city should be a place where you can you can have an upward trajectory. You can live better than your parents lived. Yeah, right? absolutely. And I don't see how that's possible. Uh, you know, if you grew up in Kitsilano, or you grew up in East Vancouver, uh, your parents could buy houses for you know a couple hundred grand, maybe less. Mm-hmm. Forget that now. <laughs> um, and and it that trickles into everything. It trickles into people's professional choices, their their marital, their relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure how you wind that clock back
1: yeah and to your point of complacency I, th- I think that that's a great argument because while people were getting filthy rich through development and real estate deals and all that stuff if you had skin in the game and you had equity in a your property you're seeing your property values skyrocket as well so you're not really complaining right there's no incentive for you to be like whoa whoa this is very unhealthy yeah what, what about my kids who have to become adults And maybe you don't have kids yet but even just thinking forward that way i think yeah there absolutely was some complacency and i hate to say that it's too late but i think in a lot of ways it kind of is and and so the question i pose to you is is this all about housing is this all about real estate
0: to me that's what it comes back to i think i think it has infected no that's a dangerous word it has um colored That's a very, that's a much better word for the podcast. Everything that happens in Vancouver. Um, You know, uh, you go to other cities and it is not the constant subject of conversation that it is here Um, for better or for worse, right? People complaining, people celebrating. Uh, It's just, it's a thing, you know, like I lived in Calgary for a while. People didn't talk about housing all the time. It was a thing that was, you know, you had shelter and you either chose to rent or buy and you either lived in a condo or a house, but you didn't talk about it with with your friends all the time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, whereas here it it absolutely it's almost like this this cloud that hangs over the entire city. Yeah. Um, and you know, if, if you look at it from a business perspective, it it's sort of what happens in Alberta or happened in Alberta, where if you were trying to raise money for a business that wasn't the you know the only game in town, mm-hmm. here real estate, there oil and gas, good luck. Yeah. Because people knew how to make money in, in the other one. And so if you were starting a tech business or if you were starting uh, a flower shop or, or a biotech, company, whatever, it was super hard to get capital and it was super hard to retain talent. Yeah, absolutely. And so that shaped, that altered the trajectory of both of those cities' economies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, in, in turn, people's lives, people's choices about where they wanted to live and work. I, I'm hard pressed to see how... You know, certainly there are big tech companies that that are that are operating here and are opening head off or not head offices, but you know they're warehousing talent uh, because the immigration system in America is so terrible. Right, and there is an opportunity there for Vancouver. But they're, they're
1: concerned about housing as well.
0: They are too. Yeah, no. They, I mean, one of the the biggest, um, the loudest voices on the the housing affordability issue is a gentleman who came here because he worked in tech, mm-hmm. and he immediately realized that oh, this this is not viable. This is not workable. Um, I think they could do something about it if they really wanted to, but it would require a level of political will that I don't see at present. And you know, part of the problem is there's not really a powerful lobby group on behalf of housing affordability. Yeah. There, there is an enormously powerful lobby group on behalf of building more units and, and helping the development industry remain prosperous. So
1: you're and, not one of these more supply people?
0: I think more supply is important. I, I mean, I, th- I think the only way that you can bring prices down is with more supply, but it has to be massively more supply and it has to be massively more supply in neighborhoods that don't want supply right now. Yeah. So if you gave me a magic wand and said, you are you are now a dictator, fix the housing situation in Vancouver, I would immediately spot up zone or sorry, not spot blanket up zone every residential neighborhood in the city to like five stories, hmm. right? Kitsilano, Carisdale, Dunbar, sorry, no more big houses. Yeah. Everything has to be at least five stories tall, yeah, um, and that it's just politically it's not viable because if they did that at the municipal level, every single person would get thrown out of office. yeah, and if there's one thing that politicians have in common, they hate losing their jobs. Um, I, I think the government also has to get back in a big way in the co-op affordable housing space. they you know, I grew up in a co-op. I think co-ops are great, and they more or less abandoned the field for twenty five years. They've come back recently, but they need to do much more and they need to invest more money and the province needs to come on board and and you know do do their part as well they are under the NDP but they didn't under the previous government so it it kind of requires a wholesale reexamination of our relationship with shelter away from something that makes you money into something that Allows you to live, yeah, right. It is not an asset that you should get rich off of. It is a thing that is part of your life, mm-hmm. right? And that's a that's a huge mindset shift. I, I have all sorts of friends who live here or used to live here who would have their parents get in their ear about, well, you need to buy because when I bought, I I spent this much and now it's worth this much. They think that that's going to happen forever, yeah, and it's not. But how do you change the mindset of an entire generation who got? really, really rich, doing a thing that
1: wasn't hard. Sure, yeah. Right? That's very passive. Yeah. I think we're too far gone in terms of the market, because as you sort of alluded to, I don't think it's politically viable for anyone to bring in policies that will crash the market in terms of market prices. And I also think there's a great cynicism about dropping towers everywhere. I mean, you said five stories, but just the idea of, you know, dropping these buildings that end up being empty or there's someone's vacation home for a few weeks of the year or they get Airbnb'd, right? There's a lot of cynicism around that. I don't think it's viable. I think there's huge issues in the market end. But where I think there is opportunity is, again, as you've said, public housing, social housing, and that needs to be invested in so heavily. And, And that'll create this sort of dichotomy in Vancouver, and I don't know what the consequences of that. Again, I'm a non-expert here, but I think I see that as the only viable way. I, I I don't know how much you can sell, you know, more supply if it's market supply to the public, and for good reason as well, as for the reasons I just mentioned.
0: Absolutely. I so growing up in a co-op, you is an interesting experience. You get to see things from a different uh, perspective, and and. This probably explains why I didn't, you know, buy a condo when I was 25 and don't now have a b- you know big bag of money beside me. But uh, I never saw housing as a way to create wealth. Yeah. I saw it as a form of community. Yeah. And and I loved growing up in in the co-ops I grew up in. I wouldn't change a thing uh, because y- you have a str- much stronger sense of being in it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the, you know one of the big problems with Vancouver and I'm not the first person to put his finger on this, is that it can be very cold here. Not cold yeah. temperature-wise, although I, I will always go to bat for uh, taking an Alberta winter over a BC winter. Uh, there's nothing colder than like three degrees and constant rain.
1: Yeah. Uh, but oh, that seeps into your bones. It gets into your bones, exactly. Yeah.
0: But, um, but there's a coldness in the way we... Deal with each other here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Vancouver Foundation I think did a study on that back in you know, about six or seven years ago, where they said that you know Vancouver has very high levels of depression and loneliness. Yeah, and I think people are more isolated socially here than they are in other parts of the country. And I think part of that is the real estate effect. It's everyone thinking that they're their own autonomous. Uh, agent and and you know you're out for yourself and you live in these sort of atomized com- condos and don't really see people and maybe there's you know 30% of your building is Airbnb'd so you don't even trust your neighbors anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that all sort of starts to build into a, a collective uh, alienation with each other and the nice thing about co-ops in addition to being affordable um is that you are forced to know your neighbors. Yeah. You are on committees. You have to take out the garbage. You have to do the gardening or whatever it is that you're good at, you, Mm -hmm. you, you cooperate, you know, in the co-op that my mom still lives in, you know, they brought in a couple of Syrian families uh, over the last few years and everyone has contributed, you know, giving them clothes and helping get, you know, help them find jobs and do, and even taking care of their kids sometimes. And it's nice. It feels good to be part of a community. And I think, I think Vancouver has lost sight of that a little bit in, in this sort of speculative, mania where where everyone sees houses as their ticket to uh, you know to retiring at 45. Yeah. And I don't it, you know, again, again it's going to take a huge policy intervention to change that. But it's not impossible. The city owns land, the federal government has money, the province can do things. If they all come together, I I, I don't think they can save the city, but I think they can change the trajectory it's on and and make it more livable for nurses and teachers and doctors and, okay, maybe not doctors, but um, they're doing okay. But, you know- Some of them are struggling too. Well, it's true. Right? It's true. Uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, who is a doctor, bless his heart, he works in the, in the emergency rooms uh, downtown and in Surrey, and he's fantastic. But he and his wife uh, couldn't afford to live in the house that I grew up in. And my that was when my mom was, you know, just, just had just uh, been called to the bar and my dad was a poet. Wow. right so in one generation the house housing market went from affordable for a poet to not affordable for two doctors <laughs> yeah it's crazy right? it's crazy yeah um and i think social housing community housing public housing can bring those people back into th- sort of the the urban residential neighborhoods like it's it's if all of the first responders and teachers and other middle class professionals live you know in Langley what does that mean for Vancouver? Yeah. What does that mean to their ability to contribute to the community in Vancouver? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's good. Uh, I, I have heard a study that, you know, if there's an earthquake and and it happens at the wrong time of day, you're going to have a lot of people on the wrong side of the bridges yeah. that we need on the right side of the bridges. Yeah, yeah. So there's all these, it's not just about housing affordability. Housing affordability has this knock-on effect in, you know, the, the, the strength of our communities, their their resilience, their ability to, you know, handle disaster. That I'm not really sure w- people in Vancouver have come to terms with yet, uh, and one of the one of the most disappointing things about getting uh, canned at Vancouver Magazine uh, was that I didn't get to have these conversations, because that was that was what I wanted to do with that magazine was sort of provoke these sorts of deeper conversations rather than just doing. Oh, here's the most powerful people in Vancouver. And right. guess what? 30 of them are in real estate. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought we could actually have a more probing, uh, serious conversation about the issues that that a lot of people still talk about, but aren't, they're not reaching the level that they need to.
1: And that's why you need to come back for good. I think that's why we need you here, because I loved everything you just said. And unfortunately, in the dialogue of housing, it's this supply side team versus the demand side team and there's so much compromise in the middle. but so many of the loudest voices don't see it i think our provincial government has been doing a great job in sort of balancing both and i think everyone needs to look at housing from this broader perspective about communities about what this means for our city as you just mentioned you know in an emergency situation we need that balance back and it gets so polarized in the dumbest ways (laughs) because everyone's just looking at their own myopic situation that it's disheartening. I mean, I live here. I'm I'm in the housing market, but it's absolutely disheartening when I look at my communities, when I look at friends of mine that have to move away, when I look at friends of mine that have rental insecurity. That sucks. I could not imagine living with that over my head, but there's a majority of people in the city that do.
0: Yeah, it's almost like BC needs like the equivalent of the Bloc Quebecois, but have it be like the... the less racist? Well, please, <laughs> yes, less racist, but but have it be a, like a renter's coalition or a yeah. housing where it's just a one-issue party and it forces this issue onto the, onto the national and uh, provincial stage. Now, the problem is there's probably not enough seats there nationally, so scrap that idea, but... Um, you know, it's just yeah, it's frustrating that that the conversation is sort of driven by the people with the most money and the loudest voices. I met, you know, I wrote a piece for the Calgary Herald six years ago, um, called it a renters manifesto, mm-hmm. um, because I think people feel bad, especially when they're they our age, when when they rent, because they feel like, well, I'm supposed to own by now. I'm mm-hmm. supposed to. It's a it's an achievement. I haven't achieved. I'm a failure, and that's that's nonsense. That's propaganda. That's that's what. The, you know the the housing industry would like you to
1: think. Well, it's how the system's designed as well.
0: Yeah, we we have all these sort of uh, ways that we tip the table in favor of owning mm-hmm. versus renting, and frankly, part of the affordability conversation is evening that table out a little bit and yeah. making renting a viable choice uh, for for everyone. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's funny you talk to like money managers and people who make a living with their with knowing how. You know how to c- calculate financial spreadsheets and things like that. They are disproportionately renters <laughs> because they understand the hidden costs of housing. They understand, you know, the, there's a lot of transactional friction in owning that that you know the, the developers never tell you about. Mm-hmm. But uh, but they are not. There's no lobby group for renters. There is no effective voice for renters, and there's no effective voice for having a more sort of productive conversation about housing. Yeah. Because where's the money to be made there? Right. That's the. I mean, this is this is fundamentally why I and people in Alberta like to call me a, a socialist for this. But this is why I believe in government. I I believe that government. There are places where the market just it fails. It it cannot do what it what is best for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is where government must step in. And there's a whole bunch of these market failures throughout society. You know, whether it's in healthcare uh, or housing uh, or you know public transit, whatever it might be. And this, the, I think, the government has been weirdly um, cautious about getting into housing. Mm-hmm. So we've seen progress over the, with the BC NDP. Well, BCADP. we should say getting back into housing. Yeah, 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 getting back into. I mean, certainly, you know, Trudeau era number one. Um, they did a very good job, mm-hmm. um, but they need the same level of commitment and the same kind of vision that they had back then. And that's again that now we're circling back to sort of non-cynical politics because. Their vision for housing was not about how do we win votes. Yeah. It was about what is best for the community, right? And they did what was best for the community. And, the, and you know, you look at Falls Creek, that community is, I would argue, one of the most enviable places to live in, in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the vision that they laid out, you know, 50 years ago for what was basically a toxic waste dump at the time. Um, so you know, I, I, I think they can do it again. If they did it with a toxic waste dump, I think we can do it with, uh, with other pieces of property and other assets that the government currently owns. But they have to be willing to articulate
1: a vision that looks beyond four years. This is why we need you back. I'm going to burden you with this entire city. You need to come back. Well, yeah. You need I, to have these conversations. You need to get in people's ear.
0: I, I, it's tempting. It's tempting. <laughs> believe me. Every time I come back here, I don't get tired about talking about this issue because, like you said, it it has it has very tangible, direct effects on the lives of people that I love. Yeah. Where I see them struggling, not able to save, not able to go on vacations, having to work too hard, uh, not able to take care of their parents. Like there's just a whole bunch of knock-on effects that don't need to be there. Uh, and if they weren't there, I think this, then this really would be a world-class city, mm-hmm. but it's not there yet.
1: You ever hear uh, dabble in Buddhism? I'm, get, I'm getting <laughs> a lot of Buddhist vibes from you right now um, throughout this hour.
0: My, it's an interesting observation. I am I am a proud atheist, but if I had to pick a, re, a team for a religion, it would probably be Buddhism. There you go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Max, I am so grateful that uh, you made time for me today. If people want to read more from you, if they want to keep up to date with your work and if they want to keep a tab on your Twitter, where should they find you?
0: So they can find me at at Max Fawcett on Twitter. Um, that's, I mean, in this day and age, that's really all you need to know. I'm, I'm reachable there. I will be... What's your TikTok? Oh, I don't have TikTok oh, yet. No, no, no I, I, I'm I, not ready for that yet. Uh, I can barely do LinkedIn. So uh, yeah, Twitter, Twitter is the best place to find me
1: um, and just try to be kind. I love it. This was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And shout out to our boy, Neil, uh, I hope I pronounced his last name, right? Yeah. Neil Wade, on Ed the Sox FU network, he kind of connected us. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I appreciate your time.
0: No, no, it's good to be here. I really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, and yeah, hats off to, uh, to Neil the, uh, I guess you have to pay it forward now as a, as a podcast
1: brother. I will. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, he is one of my favorite political writers in this country. He's Max Fawcett, and I am Moamir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.